morning, I invite you to turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter seven as we continue our study on covenant theology. We're going to look today at how that covenant extends into the kingdom of David and the kingship of David. We're still talking about the same covenant of grace, but we're going to see how God speaks to David and issues those promises to him as well. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, pray that you would help us to, to be affected by it in such a way that it will change the way that we do things, the way that we live our lives, what we believe. Father, I think oftentimes it's easy for us to believe these big promises that you give us in Scripture, but yet also believe that you're not actually involved in our own day-to-day life. And so, Father, help us to be convicted of that sin and to trust wholly in you, not only for your promises to men like Abraham, Moses, and David, but to people like us as well. Open our eyes, open our hearts, so that we might see your word and learn from it and be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, one of the things, as I read this passage, we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses there of 2 Samuel 7, is I was reminded that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of it leads in death, and that God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. David, who is a major player in our story today, is a major player in Scripture. Oftentimes, when if you were to just ask a person who is someone that is in the Bible, they would probably name David a lot of times. He's a pretty important person. But he did not start out as that. You guys remember, his dad, Jesse, had eight sons, of whom David was the youngest, And Samuel, the prophet, was sent to appoint a new king among Jesse's sons because the Lord had rejected Saul, the the current king. And as Samuel goes to the place and as Jesse's sons begin passing before Samuel, Samuel sees the oldest and he he basically looks at this oldest son and knows that he has found his king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it records this episode, and it says this. When they came in, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, All of your sons are here? And he said, Nope, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit here until he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord's and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This isn't at all what we would have chosen. I mean, it wasn't what Samuel, he was a prophet of the Lord. He saw big bad Eliab come before him and said, Well, this is obviously the king. And that wasn't the case. So when we get to this story in 2 Samuel 7, when David has the idea that it's time to build a temple to the Lord, and Nathan the prophet even says, sure, you should do that. That's a great idea. That evening, Nathan was told of a different plan for the house of David. Remember what God told Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden, that one would come deliver them from the world of sin and darkness by crushing the head of the evil one and undoing the curse that they had brought on the world. Noah believed it. Abraham believed it. Moses believed it. As did many in Israel. They believed this promise. And though Israel had its shares of ups and downs over the course of their history, there were many who hung on to these promises of God. They knew that he would always be theirs and that they would always be his. And so as we read this interaction between God and Nathan concerning the future house of David, we're going to continue to see this exact same thread called the covenant of grace come out. God shows favor to his people. Why? Because of his great love for them, even while they were doing what people do, and that is worship other gods. And as you get deep into this text we call the Old Testament, you're going to begin to realize more and more that people are worse than you could possibly imagine. I mean, just read the book of Judges. I've talked through it before, and by the end of the book, it kind of feels like you're about to drown because it just doesn't get any better. It only gets worse. But yet God continues to love his people. Why? Because he said he would. Because he said that even when they would not hold up the bargain, that he himself would come to take care of it so that we might experience the blessings forever. So we're going to look at these ideas from this text today. They're going to further our idea of the covenant of grace, and we're going to continue to see God's love for us and his ultimate plan for redemption. So as we look at this, let's stand together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, 
Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I have brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people in Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring and after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a, be a fa- I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So, again, just as a little bit of a background, I mean, the people of Israel wandered the desert for years, unable to enter into the promised land because of their own unbelief. But yet, even after the Lord allowed them to enter in, and they began to defeat their enemies, the Canaanites, there was this constant seed of doubt. There was this constant seed of unbelief through the acts of the people. And this culminates in the book of Judges. And as you read the ultimate or the, the opening chapter of Judges, you see Israel go out and do some they they conquer and then they kind of conquer and then they go out and completely fail. And the rest of the book of Judges is this cycle of Israel failing, calling out to God, being saved, Israel failing, calling out to God, being saved. And it's a little depressing to read. But then you get to 1 Samuel, and the people demand a king. Maybe this will solve their problems. This by itself was a sign that they weren't sure that the Lord would deliver. But what does the Lord do? He provides a king in Saul, who turns out to be a dud. A man who was after his own acclaim, who was after his own prosperity, and who directly defies the word of the Lord. So the Lord puts him away, as he says in this text. 
And this is where David comes in, as we read earlier. A man after God's own heart. David is selected by the Lord and from his humble beginnings takes Israel from a bunch of wandering people to a great nation. And so as we come to this chapter, you can kind of get the picture that here is David sitting with Nathan. Everything is settled around them, and they feel this sense of accomplishment. And he's in his great big cedar house, and he looks at Nathan, and he says, I live in this great place, yet the Lord continues to live in a tent. I should do something about that. And that brings us to our text. The Lord obviously heard this conversation and comes to Nathan that night in a vision. And he says, go and tell my servant David, would you build a house for me to dwell in? This is kind of a rhetorical question. And it questions the presumption of both David and Nathan, because remember, Nathan completely agreed with him. It questions this presumption because, would you build a house for the Lord to live in? Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is a great chapter for understanding the greatness of God. And verse 24 and 25 really speak to God's reluctance about this house that he should live in. Look at verses 24 and 25 of 17. The Lord who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, you would build me a house to dwell in, says the Lord, who is the creator of all things, is the Lord of all things, who gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He who is unable to be contained would live in a house made by the hands of man. David considers this cedar house to be this a great accomplishment, apparently. But the Lord says, you know what? I remember when there weren't cedar trees because I spoke them into existence. And I, I believe that David's motives are good here. But as it were, I think he missed the forest for the cedar trees. God's place is with his people, and he demonstrates that. And what does he say? I have not lived in a house, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. We, 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 we kind of expect God to say, I have not lived in a house, but I lived in this great majestic place that I've built for myself in heaven. Or I live about the entire universe because no one can contain me. But yet he says, I have not lived in a cedar house like you, but I have been moving about in a tent. Moving about, being picked up and put down over and over and over again for years and years and years. And that is his dwelling. 
This is one of the more loaded statements in Scripture. Why was the Lord moving about anyway? Was it because he was choosing to do that? Some, yes, but mostly because of the indecision and idolatry from his people. And yet, what did he continue to do? He continued to be in the center of the camp, in their midst. So don't miss this. The God who does not live in houses built by hands is among his people dwelling in a tent. Why is that? Because he loves his people. Because he desires to be among him, among them. His, his place is among his people. We want to think oftentimes of Christ being the first major condescension of God in Scripture. And that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, vindictive God that is very transcendent and is not ever imminent among his people. But right here, this proves otherwise, and this shows otherwise, that the God of the Bible is merciful and good, and he's amongst his people, right there amongst his people. And so I think reading this and hearing this and understanding this from the point of view that God is not in a house, but yet he's in much less, should help us to understand this idea of in the New Testament when it says God became flesh and dwelt among us. You know the passage there in Philippians 2 where it talks about when our Lord Jesus came down and humbled himself. We should read that as God moving about in a tent for his dwelling. It helps us to understand that passage much more deeply. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Testament is the Jesus of the Old Testament. And that brings us next to David's exaltation. We have God's humility, but measured against David's exaltation. And I love this, the way that the Lord paints it here, is it's almost like this rags-to-riches kind of story. Thus you shall therefore say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should become prince over my people Israel. I took you from the pasture. Remember Samuel went and and Jesse said, Well, I've got one more, but he's out there and he's tending to the animals. That was the one the Lord chose. That he should become prince of all of his people. And what does he say? I will make your name great, like the other great names on the earth. What are those other great names on the earth? They're the ones that the Lord made great also. This language should set off alarms in our head. Because this is very similar language to the language we've been hearing all along in the covenants. What does the Lord say to his people? I will make your name great. This is the same language. This is covenant language. And God is now reaffirming these terms of the covenant. Not, he does, not because they've become somehow old and stale and that he needs to like revive them. But the people are in constant need of a reminder. David wanted to build a physical house for the Lord, but God had something much better 
in mind for his people. And you get this, also you get this picture of going from extreme violence to peace. I mean, read Joshua, read Judges, 1 Samuel. These books have a lot of violence. There's a lot of death going on for because the people of Israel are constantly being attacked and are constantly attacking. And what does he say? I will appoint place for my people, and I will plant them, and they will be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more. When I read this, I hear the promise of the garden. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but you shall crush his head. There will be peace. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And then he goes on, and the Lord says, get this, David said, I'm going to build for the Lord a house, because this is what I want to do. But what does the Lord say? He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord turns the tables on him. You're going to make a house for me? No, I'm going to make you a house. David intended to make the Lord a house and to make the Lord's name great. And that's the right thing to do. But the Lord says, no, I'm going to build you a house out of you. And I'm going to make your name great. Can you imagine being a pagan in the time of David? A time when the gods were so angry and jealous and you could only worship them so much so that many of the pagan gods at the time demanded human sacrifice in order to be appeased. And they were just never happy. Ever. And people would build temples in order to please their god. Well, this is God is pleased and don't build me a temple. And they did nothing to deserve it. It's the opposite of what we might think. And David is going to get all of the blessings for this. It's amazing how we see these, these words of God continuing to be fulfilled. God, or Nathan's, or God's words to Nathan will have a very near, near fulfillment. Solomon will actually build a temple to the Lord, and that's a good thing. And David's name will be, become great, and his people will become great, and there will be kings after his line, and that's a very near fulfillment. But we should see the covenant language here, that God's covenant of grace has fulfillment in one, and that one is Jesus Christ. And so that brings us next to Christ's humility and his exaltation. And I want to give credit to Ralph Davis. He's an Old Testament professor, a Hebrew scholar, incredible Old Testament commentator. And these were some of his thoughts here on this final point. As you get to verses 12 through 17, this is the meat, so to speak, of the Davidic covenant. And you can see, even though this has a very near fulfillment in David and his sons and their sons, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. And I love how Dr. Davis looked at this in three points. He said that death cannot touch it, sin cannot destroy it, and time cannot exhaust it. So I want to look at those real quick, those three ideas. Death cannot touch it. He says, when your days 
are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's going to build a house for his name, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. But what does he start with by saying, David, you're not going to see any of this, because you're going to do like everyone since Adam has done. You're going to die. And all the kings after them are going to die. And there would come one named Jesus Christ, who is of the line of David, who is the king of all kings. And guess what he would do? He would do just like his fathers before him. He would die. But because of the promises that God made to us, because of the promises that God made to Adam and everyone since then, his people, Jesus Christ would not stay in the grave. Death would not hold him down because death could not contain him. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of every single one of these promises. And he now sits on the throne and reigns forever. Sin cannot destroy it. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. You see this play itself out in the rest of the books. Rest of Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, in the Chronicles. You see this idea that they will commit iniquity, the sons of David. You have all these really bad kings and a smattering of good kings. And the good kings weren't all that great because they did crazy things too. David himself would even receive discipline from the Heavenly Father and all the kings after him. These men of God that carry this great responsibility, God is disciplining them because he loves them. And we see that continue to play out throughout the Old Testament, throughout the books of the Kings, and throughout the same First and Second Samuel in these books. We see that playing out. But then what does the Lord say? My steadfast love will not depart. Because steadfast love, by, by its definition, cannot depart. Our sin cannot remove us from the love of God. Because Jesus took our sin away. You know, it says in Romans chapter 8, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thankfully, he's not waiting for us to kind of become better at what we do in order to help us and save us. He's not waiting for our merit to match his love. Because it never could. He's going to do it anyway. And lastly, this idea that time cannot exhaust it. It says, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. If you know the story, Israel is not currently one of the most, the greatest kingdoms on earth. Israel will fall over and over and over again, even inside this book, much less what happens after that. 
they will go through all this turmoil. They will go through a split because of family. They will go through exile. But it's one from David's throne who would eventually take it up and reign forever. And how did he come? As a baby, born and placed in a feeding trough as the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the god of all creation. And he came humbly, and not only did he come humbly, but he came knowing full well that his destiny was to give up himself so that we, the ones who deserved that death, might be able to partake in the blessings and the promises that we read right here in Second Samuel chapter 7. We can take part in these blessings right now. And again, as I mentioned in the prayer, I think that we're ready to accept the fact, as believers, we're ready to accept the fact that, that God will establish his kingdom forever in Jesus Christ. And we, and we agree with that and we're ready to accept that. But are we ready to believe him for much less than that? I mean, think of the circumstances in your life right now that you aren't trusting the Lord for. I mean, the Lord comes to David and says, forever your kingdom will be made sure. If anybody understands what the concept of forever is, it's the Lord. And he says, forever your kingdom will be made sure. I mean, for me personally, this is something I thought of when I was reading this, I'm much more willing to believe that the kingdom of God will be made sure forever, that I'm willing to believe that he will give me rest for today, that he will give me the mercy that I need for each new day, because I would rather depend on myself. I would much rather depend on myself because it seems so much more tangible. I can reach out and grab it. And every sin that's happened inside this book and outside of this book is that same idea. We don't believe what God says. We don't believe the promises. So I'm going to just try to do it on my own. But yet, the Lord says, I will always be yours. You will always be mine. I will always have a kingdom. Jesus Christ is on the throne. And because of him, you can be called my son. And so for Christians, for us, we need to trust God, not only for these grand promises that we find in Scripture, and it's really good for us to go through this idea of covenant theology, because these are the big promises in Scripture. These are the things that help us to see the rest of Scripture for what it is. But we also need to make sure that we are trusting him for the day-to-day. -day. Because that's what we live, day-to-day. We should be trusting him for everything else. I mean, consider David. He never saw these promises come true. But he did see a whole lot. I mean, just think of his humble beginnings. Someone who never should have been made into a headline. Who should have just been left out in the pasture to tend his sheep. Is now the headliner of the redemptive story in Scripture because God showed him favor. The story of David has the same ending as ours because David trusted in the same Jesus that we do. He saw his day and was glad for it.
And so we should also see his day and trust in him and be glad for it. Whether it's something that's very, that's mundane, or it's something like praying for the work of our church, which we should be doing. How can we possibly reach the vast hundreds and thousands that showed up to school yesterday? We know they need reached. We know they're desperate for it. We can trust Him to help us with that. We can trust Him to even go before us and do that. Because He will, and He's good, and He wants to see His kingdom go forth here in Murray, Kentucky. And we know that He's doing this work. If you're here and you're not a believer, you can trust that God will keep these promises just as He keeps them all, in Jesus Christ. And it's the name of Jesus Christ that there is salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. But for Christians, trust the Lord. It's the one thing that I kept coming back to over and over as I read this passage this week. is He is good in these really big things, in these really big ideas, but He is good in every single thing that goes on in each one of our lives. His plan has been set, and it does not change. We can trust Him for that. And we can trust Him for everything that life throws at us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that I am guilty of oftentimes getting wrapped up in the big promises and forgetting to see that You are helping even me. I want to look at men like Abraham and Moses and David and think those are the kind of men you help, not people like me. But yet, they are people like me. They are people in need of a Savior. And so, Father, help us to see that. Help us to see that you are doing incredible works in our own life and that you are doing incredible work right now in this city. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.